Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6. We found on page 635 in our few Bibles or 1212 in our large print. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you that you have not only created us, but that you are our sustainer, that you are the one who does provide what we need. God, we thank you that you are not distracted as we are by what we think we need. That you provide what we really do need. Lord, we ask that this morning you would help us to trust in you and what you provide. Pray that you would give us understanding as we hear your word read and proclaimed this morning. Not that we would know more, but that we would know you better. That we would come to love and trust you more. And that you would continue the work by your word and your spirit. In creating us to be the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture, for they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them, and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Turning into our New Testament lesson, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 found on page 954 in your pew Bibles or 1829, a large print. Paul writing about Jesus says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, 
without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in a series right now as we prepare ourselves and prepare our hearts for Easter and the resurrection that we get to celebrate uh, together on Easter Sunday and every Sunday. During this time, looking forward to Easter, we are uh, looking at closely, more closely the events of the cross, specifically the words that Jesus says from the cross. Now, before we go there right now, um, I want to tell you, I already told the kids about one of my favorite movies. I'm going to tell everybody about one of my other favorite movies. And that is, of course, The Princess Bride. And that is just because of when I was born, and that's how that works. Um, I think everybody my age, that's at least within their top ten. So in The Princess Bride, though, you may remember there is a famous line, the line that made uh, Mandy Patinkin famous, which is, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Uh, that, is, that is the line. And he says it multiple times, and it's one that by the end of the movie, if, you, uh, if you've seen it and are as intimately familiar with this film as I am, you'll remember that at the end of the movie, he finally uh, catches the guy. He catches up to the six-figured man who killed his father, and now he's going to have his revenge. And once he does, he says, I've been in the revenge business so long, now I don't know what to do with myself. Because that has been his primary motivation for the entire film. He's got to find this guy. He's got to get his revenge. Now, I mention that one because that's the one for me that just comes to mind instantly. You may have your own favorite revenge films. And that's because there are so many of them. And I think one of the reasons why revenge films are, uh, are a thing is because revenge is natural and forgiveness is unnatural. Revenge is natural. In fact, not just revenge like you did this to me, I did this to you, in, uh, which is kind of how it works in, uh, in The Princess Bride. Every single wound that this man has inflicted on him, he does the same back to the guy, scar for scar. It's uh, really done to demonstrate that he's giving him exactly what he gave him. But we don't usually just retaliate and give exactly what we got, but we actually try to uh, up it a bit. And we see this in the first few pages of the whole Bible. The story of all of creation and how things have gone, and we see that uh, Cain kills his brother, and the next thing we find out is that after that, we have, you know, family line of Cain. And how does this go? Does it get any better? No, it doesn't. So in Genesis chapter 4, right after we hear about Cain, we hear about another man named Lamech who comes home and he's bragging to his wives, also a problem, leave that for now, bragging to his wives that he's killed somebody, killed a young man for wounding him. Do you hear that? He's killed a young man for wounding him. In other words, he hurt me, so I killed him. And he's coming home bragging about this and wanting everyone to know about it. Why? Because he wants everyone to know 
nobody messes with Lamech. That's who he is. If you hurt him, he's going to do you in. And this is actually what's natural. To not only inflict what you did to me back to you, but also to do a bit more, you know, just for pain and suffering <laughs> that you caused me. You hit me in the right eye, I'm going to hit you in the right eye. You know what? I'm going to hit you in the left eye. Pain and suffering. I'm also going to take out a few of your teeth just to show you you can't mess with me. And you know what? One more punch in the gut just because I'm feeling good right now. Kind of in the mood, right? So that's, that's generally how we uh, carry out justice, <laughs> which I put in air quotes. Justice, uh, but this is not justice. This is revenge. This is what comes naturally to us. And so we see, uh, we see throughout, throughout the Bible, throughout the whole world, that civilizations have to come up with ways to restrain that natural behavior. That circle, uh, that cycle of violence that just escalates and escalates. That fighting fire with a bigger fire, and then a bigger fire, and it just keeps going. And so we see uh, even in the law given on Mount Sinai, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? We say, is that how it has to be? It's actually not how it has to be. Jesus takes it a step further, but at this point, this is where we are. Why did he say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Because that was to be the limit. It could go no further than that. You can't add on additional for pain and suffering, and additional because you just feel like it. Whatever they did to you, you can do that to them and no more. And so it set the limits of what that would be. Now, why do we bring all this up? Well, because this morning we're looking at Jesus on the cross. Looking at uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 26 making sure. Oh. Yeah, we'll start with 30. Mm, no, we're going back to 26. All right. Luke 23, verses 26 through 38. Yeah. We'll pause as we get most of the way through. It says, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Now, some of you are probably already reading ahead, or you know the story already, or you've already seen the front of your bulletin. But we're going to pause there and pretend we don't know what he says next. That we don't know what Jesus says as he is hanging there on the cross, not deserving what he's getting. 
we know what comes naturally. And in fact, we've seen Jesus quote Scripture a lot. When he's tempted in the wilderness, his answer every time is Scripture. Seems like what just comes out of him. When he's teaching and uh, talking about the way of the kingdom of God, he's quoting Scripture all the time. Commenting on it, reminding people of it. So, maybe that's what we see here, and in which case, we might see, uh, and think back to 2 Chronicles 24. This is where uh, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, I'm going to just assume that I pronounced that right, Jehoiada the priest, he comes and he stands before the people and he says, this is what God says. Will you disobey the Lord's command? commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they plotted against him, and by the order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. And then as he lay dying, they just killed him. As he lays dying, he says, may the Lord see this and call you to account. This would be something Jesus could pray from the cross, right? These people are doing what is absolutely not right. Here I am, like Zechariah the priest before me, standing up for what is right and being killed for it. So may God see what you are doing and judge you for it. May he hold you accountable for the actions that you are committing right now. He could pray that. Or he could pray what many of us have uh, probably prayed, whether with these words or not, at least these same ideas, many, many times over. This is from Jeremiah chapter 17. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but keep me from shame. Let them be terrified, but keep me from terror. Bring on them the day of disaster and destroy them with double destruction. Tell you what, that doesn't sound too bad. Hanging there on the cross with these people who are doing what is absolutely wrong to him. Praying that God would see this and destroy them for it. And there are plenty of psalms that echo this kind of thinking as well. I think the reason those are there is because there is a part of us that longs for justice, and that is a good thing. And to cry out our cries for justice to God is also a good thing. However, what we see from Jesus here is not a cry for justice, but a cry for mercy, a cry for forgiveness. We left off verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said... Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus, 
fully God, fully human. As we saw a couple weeks ago, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is fully God in that he is fully feeling that separation from father and son that had existed from the connection that had existed from all eternity. But also fully human, feeling every bit of the nails through his flesh. The scarred up back from the flogging he received earlier that day up against the rough cross. He feels the strain on his joints, the dryness of his mouth. And as he is hanging on the cross, suffocating to death by his arms being pulled the way they are and struggling for every breath that he can speak at all. He has this huge struggle to speak. And he uses one of these breaths, several breaths, to say, Father, not, not Father, hold this against them, but Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Okay, now we have to pause. Why in the world does he say for they don't know what they're doing? I mean, they know they're killing him, right? That seems pretty obvious. But that's not the part that he was talking about. Obviously, they knew they were killing him. And that was within the role of the government. Um, Now, the Jewish government, they couldn't do crucifixion, but the Romans were involved. That's why he gets to be crucified instead of stoned. They know what they're doing that way. What is it they don't know what they're doing? Well, look at it from what they're seeing. When they look at the three crosses on the hill, they see three criminals being crucified. Is that what you see? Do we see three criminals being crucified? No. We see two criminals being crucified and one innocent man being crucified. And not just one innocent man, but the one that we saw in Colossians... Paul says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Through him, everything's been made, has been made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, as John tells us. He is the Messiah, the Son of David, the one that God has been promising to send. And he came into the world, and as John tells us in chapter 1, he's God in the flesh. But as he came into the world, the world did not recognize him. So they see a common criminal being crucified. And he says they have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea that they are killing the author of life, as Peter says later. Killing the author of life. They are killing the one hope they have of salvation. They don't know they're doing that. And you see this tension between he's led out there with criminals, he's crucified between criminals, and yet above his head it says the king of the Jews. And people are even calling out, mocking him, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Completely not understanding that he is the king of the Jews. But he did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he can't save himself and save us. It's one or the other. And so from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Now, does this mean that he is excusing them just because they don't know what they're doing, and that's, if you don't know it, it doesn't count? Or no? I suppose you could try that if you miss all the speed limit signs coming through town during school time. They pull you over for going 75 to the school zone. You can say, I didn't know. (laughs) And see if they say, well, then that doesn't count then. Oh, but it still does. In fact, where's that? Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though they do not know it, they are guilty and will be held responsible. Yikes. And there's a whole legal code set up for the people of Israel, for what they're to do when they find out that they have been sinning unintentionally. I didn't know. I didn't mean it. But this is what it is. Now what do I do? You know what it is? There's a variety of of, uh, offerings to be offered, but every time it is a sacrifice. An animal has to die because of that sin, even though you didn't know it. So here Jesus is praying for their forgiveness, though they don't know what they're doing. But where's the sacrifice? Jesus here is the sacrifice that is paying for the sins of the very people who are crucifying him. Now, when we realize as we look at this situation, that we are in the position of those who need forgiveness, of those who sin and have no idea the depths of our sin, who have no idea just how far past the line we are and how far-reaching every sin is, both in our lives and the lives of those around us, we realize that that is our position, that we are like those soldiers at the cross. These are good words to hear. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Now, this would be a good place to stop. I'm not going to. It would be a good place to stop if the only point of all of this is that for us to then rejoice in the forgiveness we have received, which we are to do that. But there's more to it. See, this isn't just Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them what they're doing. This is Jesus actually practicing what he preaches. Because he has preached earlier for people to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. And here we see him doing that in action. Loving his enemies and praying for those who are persecuting him. We see him... In, uh, in Luke 6, saying one of the hardest statements he says, he's got a lot of hard ones, here's this. Luke six twenty seven and 28, he says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. talks about if you uh, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And we see him actually do that. 
as the soldiers were leading him out to the cross, they take him and they put him in a robe and they put a crown of thorns on his hand on his head, and they hit him. And instead of rising up and throwing them all away, he turns the other cheek. We see him putting into practice, he's praying for those who mistreat him, praying for his persecutors. When I was in Edmond this week uh, in Oklahoma, my sister had a big uh, map on her wall, and it was a map, I think, by Voice of the Martyrs, but it was a uh, map of places in the world right now where Christians are currently being persecuted for their faith. And so it had, you know, those colors, country, <laughs> countries colored in. That's way more sense. And, uh, and then it had in big letters, pray for the persecuted. That is good. Please be doing that. But in our conversations about all this, she actually pulled out a Sharpie marker and went over and changed what it said. So now her house on the wall has this big map, and it says, pray for the persecuted and the persecutors. Praying for the persecutors is something that Jesus teaches us to do and something that he, we see him do himself. So here's the thing. If we were just being saved from our sins, we could rejoice in that, and that's all good. Done. But we're not just being saved from our sins. We're actually being saved for a purpose. We are being saved to be people who are brought into the kingdom of God and into this family of God, to be children of God, brothers and sisters of one another, and those who are being made more and more like Jesus, who have the character of him. And so when he teaches this, he means it. And he says, actually do this. Not just that I will do it, but that you will also do it. And you know where we next see this happening? It's in the book of Acts, chapter 7. We see Stephen, one of the people who's uh, set aside to be a deacon, one of those uh, to serve at the tables, making sure people have the food that they need. And yet, when he becomes persecuted for the faith, when they get onto him because of his Christianity, he speaks up and gives this eloquent sermon about all the Old Testament uh, ways that God has been leading everything up to Jesus. And when he tells about Jesus, they don't like it. They decide they're going to execute him too. And so they throw stones at him, and as he is dying, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And what do we see? We see somebody who's being made like Jesus. Made like Jesus in character to where what comes out of him is the same thing that Jesus says from the cross. Says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Praying for the very people who are persecuting. The very people who are taking his life. And he's praying for them. Not against them. Like we saw in Second Chronicles and in Jeremiah and some of the Psalms. We're praying for them. And then we see that one of the people who's standing there, that he's actually praying for, we don't know what happened, by the way, with all the people standing around the cross. We're not told. Jesus prays for them. I don't know. I hope that God acted in their lives and things went a direction only he knows. We're not told of most of the people who are standing around Stephen, but we're all told about one of them. That there was a man named Saul who was there who was giving approval to stoning Stephen. Yes, this is what he gets. And you know the story of Saul and what happens with Saul. Stephen has just prayed for him. Just a few chapters later, Saul meets Jesus. Saul goes on 
to become one who had been persecuting Christians to be a Christian who is persecuted because of his faith. He goes around planting churches. He goes around writing letters to churches. And we're still reading those letters because many of his letters became part of our Bible. Most of the New Testament was written by the man who was giving approval to Stephen's death. But Stephen had prayed for him. And he met Jesus. Now, Stephen was not dying for Saul's sins. He was dying because of them, at the hands of them. But Jesus was the one who died for him. And this is why Paul is able to say later, later in his letter to the church of Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I started by saying, revenge is natural. Forgiveness is unnatural. Let me correct that just a bit. Revenge is natural. Forgiveness is supernatural. We are called to be those who rejoice in the forgiveness that we have received from Jesus, but then also to be those who have changed to be like him and pray for our persecutors as well. Pray for them, not that they would be destroyed, not that they would be held accountable, but that God would actually forgive them, that Jesus' death wouldn't just be for our sins, but for their sins too that they would come to know him, that they would come to be part of the same family, that they would come to be more and more like Jesus themselves, that they could say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Pray for the persecuted. Pray for the persecutors. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.